what's up and welcome back to nostalgia pod giving you another week of what's going on in pop culture my name is pat sheen joined by my trusty co-host dave martin swagger dave how you doing today man sitting in first class baby another pod <laughs> uh we got a lot to talk about today we got a lot of albums that we got to and some that we weren't able to get to that we're, we're a little disappointed about but only so much you can do um a couple tv shows and then a big marvel movie that dropped this weekend so to stay tuned to all of that hit the hit that subscribe on youtube.com slash nostalgia pod and help us out by giving us a five-star rating on spotify we're gonna jump into a concert though dave you saw the rapper dave in boston last night uh his album we're all alone in this together was one of your favorites uh of last year did the album translate live oh it did yeah, Dave is excellent live, honestly. Sounds exactly like his studio recordings. Doesn't miss a line. Amazing breath control. I was very impressed. Very impressed. Yeah, Dave is uh in the middle of a North American leg of the tour for this album, which in and of itself is novel because British rappers don't exactly perform in the States all that often especially as their own headliners. So you got to take those chances when they come. And I mean, this tour has been selling out across the country. So it makes a lot of sense. He sold out three nights in a row uh, in New York City right before this. Sells out in Boston at the House of Blues. And you could tell that a lot of people felt like I did because there was so much passion in the room. So so many true UK hip-hop fans, true, true Dave fans, people that knew all the words everything even starlight his newest single from two months ago and knew knew, knew the whole 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 thing and dave despite having like no set design really no one on stage with him except for an occasional guitarist really just him up there with the light show and which is just you know like a like the the venue's lights it's not even like like anything fancy just just him but like he's just so uh commanding on the mic that it, it was still just an awesome experience and just so many songs just hit because again everyone in the room there just fucking loves the guy it was awesome um and i think uh you know there's a lot of a lot of trademarks i guess from from his shows you know nothing out of the ordinary you can look at the set list for this tour it seems like it's about the same plays about an hour hour 20 minutes hour 15 minutes roughly about 15 16 tracks no no encore notably but um Tiago Silva, which is a very uh, hyped up moment at all his shows, one of his older songs, collaborated Tracy, of course. Famously, he brought a stage, uh, a fan on stage at Glastonbury a few years ago, and that that fan at, named named Alex absolutely crushed AJ's par- verses and parts, and it's like v- viral moment. So since then, he's been bringing a fan on stage at every single show he does to do this very same thing, or like pass the mic around to a few people to try and prove themselves basically. And then whoever we select as the crowd and, and Dave selects like brings person on stage and they do Tiago Silva with him live. And the person that uh, he picked was the first person he handed the mic to and was very impressive. And the crowd loved it when we like, you know, heard, heard the uh, audition, right? Second person, third person did not get a warm reception to as soon as he made his like picks like one, two, or three, everyone's like one, one, one. And then as soon as he's like, How about two? Place goes silent. Everyone oh, was damn. all behind number one. 
and then they bring out number he brings out number one they do Tiago Silva and he was a dude 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 was spazzing he was so good at the end Dave says that in like the five years he's been doing this he's not sure if anyone else has ever done it where they didn't miss a single word which if that's true that's like super impressive that I might have seen like the best rendition of the fan <laughs> Tiago Silva guest verse but even like before that, like people are chanting like, oh, Tiago Silva, obviously the famous soccer player. Like, and then when we're walking out at the end of the show, people are just chanting it. Like, it's like kind of like the rallying cry basically for, <laughs> for Dave at his shows. Um, That's yeah. And it, it was just, it was just a blast. Honestly, there was a kind of like a, like a lull moment by design towards the middle uh, of the second half of the show, I guess, where, he pulls out like the keyboard, talks a little story about how he like would pick up keys as a kid, even though he never became a great piano player or anything like that. And then uh, he actually just kind of like jammed out on the guitar with the with the backup guitarist, just kind of like doing like a guitar solo, speaking about how he also is a producer from time to time. Um, and then yeah, he uh, he ended it out with uh, a Funky Friday location the burner boy single which got a huge response and the last song was clash the stormzy song where uh the place just exploded it, it, it was an awesome time so like i said you gotta take advantage of seeing uk rappers when they're around just because it is pretty rare which is why i was so disappointed when aj tracy couldn't make the amina yeah. show from uh you know a few a month or so back due to visa issues it's because like when am i ever going to see aj tracy again like that was such a great opportunity but uh got to see dave and it was really special to be around a lot of other people that like really knew knew his music and That's had great. a lot of passion there were a lot of flags there people wearing tiago silva jerseys like was the real deal so it was oh, a great man. time and this was house of blues you said yeah hell yeah best venue in boston uh, for sure damn well uh i'm glad to hear that dave enjoyed the dave concert um you know as we see these live shows we'll be bringing it to you we recommend going to see live shows yourself because uh live music continued to continue to still be great um let's move on to non-live music though for today for today and uh we're gonna start off international as we we try to do here whenever we can and uh we talked about the rosalia album a month ago today we're gonna be talking about bad bunny and his new album unverano sinti dave bad bunny is the biggest artist on spotify the last two years 17.4 billion streams Mm -hmm. number 24 right now currently on spotify in terms of monthly listeners but dave did un verano sinti prove to you why but big bad bunny is this big yeah you know that's an interesting question because i'm not sure if it like proves anything that we didn't already know about bad money i think just generally sonically this is kind of like a lighter smoother listen per bad bunny's previous catalog it's less of like the hard-hitting like latin trap that he like really busted out onto the scene with and kind of more of a smattering of uh spanish music's latin genres including you know still some reggaeton of course but i mean yeah he's he's already kind of completely established as an absolute global superstar and we have new data for this, of course, because this album, Un Verano Sinti, uh, is number two for first day album debuts on global Spotify with 148.8 million. Just uh, a little less than 10 million behind Drake's Certified Lover Boy for number one. Obviously, uh, 
been a lot of passion for Drake's last record. I think there's going to be a lot more love for Bunnies. And like you said, number one artist on global Spotify the past two years, including last year, when he didn't release any new music, which is super impressive. But he's also been making a lot of inroads uh, in the United States where, uh, you know, that his third uh, release of 2020, uh, El Ultimo uh, Tour del Mundo, that was the first number one album in the United States that was completely in Spanish. Like he's already been making huge, huge strides. And now he has the highest grossing tour of the year currently ongoing. And he's going to extend that into a stadium tour. So it seems like there's really nothing the dude can achieve at this time. He's about to be a, a Sony superhero in their Marvel verse for crying out loud. He's, he's doing everything. So I don't know if like when Verano CNT changes anyone's opinion on that i feel like it's just kind of more bunny for people that like him and there's a lot of people that like him i think that that's a really good point you know um as you just look at his uh success so far and then you kind of turn into this album i don't know if there's anything on here that is going to necessarily like grab new fans or like expand his commercial success he's doing a lot on this album it's 23 tracks a lot of different sounds, but it's really just impressive all the way through. I don't know if every song hit for me, but it was almost like every other track I was perking up and really catching on. And obviously, you know, I think we should caveat that we are not fluent Spanish speakers. I think we both can understand like very minimal Spanish. So we don't know a lot of what's being said on the album, but in terms of how it sounds, um, what he's going for, at least in terms of the conceptualization of the sound on the album i think we can talk about it and uh, it's pretty impressive i mean he's he's jumping all over here and it's it's really like kind of moving in and out of different sounds all throughout the 23 tracks i do wish it was a little bit shorter uh just uh (laughs) selfishly but i mean uh give the people what they want bad bunny right yeah totally uh i mean he at least couches this as being like a two-sided album versus just a super long album so i guess like conceptually that's a little more uh palatable even though it's not like uh spotify lets you know when the second side starts or anything you'd have to look that up yourself (laughs) nevertheless uh like you said a lot of different sounds on here a lot of genres i'm not like super privy to right you have like dominican dembo music on here i'm not i I don't know a lot about that obviously but he did seem to split some of his time recording this between puerto rico and the dr obviously puerto rico his home um for me i think the more i guess the dembo stuff sounds pretty good to me too but also like the more traditional like reggaeton stuff just because it's like super up tempo and he just is really comfortable on those kind of beats i really like those songs of which there's plenty on this um you know i think the slower stuff i'm I'm less interested in it but i think it's all pretty forgivable because he's giving you so much of this at once and it's not all the same thing that you can kind of just take what you want out of this and i'm sure that's exactly what's going to happen like oh yeah right i mean right now you know like the day after it's come out it's going to have, you know, it's like 18 of the 20 top songs in global Spotify is this. That will not uh, obviously last, but several of these songs will last and they will be the biggest songs of the year, more likely than not. So fans are just going to take what they want from this. Yeah. And I think to that point, um, you know, you, you, 
I don't think he does anything on here necessarily like poorly. Like even those songs you're talking about, I agree. I think the more toned down songs weren't as interesting to me. And that probably is also because going back to what we said, we, we don't know what's being said. So we're not connecting with the lyrics as much on those toned down songs. So the upbeat things are probably more likely going to catch us. But um, you know, when you think about what really works on this album um, in terms of our, our, personal taste i think a couple of the early songs like despues de la playa and tt mi Preganto really stood out to me as tracks that just absolutely caught me i thought were really interesting and just it feels like him just kind of like stunting uh in a way mm-hmm. and it, it just feels like okay i get why this guy is just like a rocket ship that has no no end in sight to where his career could go um you know especially like Moscow Mule is a okay opener. You know, yeah, I didn't, classic I, reggaeton song, really. Exactly. But then you get into Despos de la Player, and it just is like, I don't know, it just really feels like he's just le- like leaning right into this, these Latin roots, really going yeah. for that like toned up Latin sound. And it just fits so perfectly. It brings a smile to your face. Even just talking about it, I get a smile come into my face. Mm. And then two songs later, you get Titi, and man uh, that that track that beat switch up halfway through is just so cool and so inventive and you're like ah okay so this this guy is has so many multitudes to him and and to his style it's really really impressive yeah totally i mean después de la playa that's that's more of like a like a mambo song and then ttme pregunto that's one of those demo tracks you know and like right away within the first four tracks you have basically like three different genres of Latin music and just shows how capable, not just capable, but like really talented he is. Um, I think later on down the track list, uh, what was it? Um, El Apagón really stood out to me just because it almost has like EDM, like an electronic production, which yeah. to that point sounded very foreign on the rest of the album. But again, cool that he can find a way to squeeze that in and it's still kind of sounds like one of his songs it's not like out of left field or anything um yeah i mean honestly like i feel like every every few songs though i'm always like ah yes more reggaeton this is pretty good like um uh effect row is another good one for that um yeah i mean i, th- I think like you know the as the title suggests uh with verana cnt which is translates to a summer with you it is lighter per his standards it's definitely not like on the production side i think it's not as as trappy as the first album or the second album, but there's still a lot of range on it, which is really cool. And I'm just very interested in his celebrity just because he's really tackling the English speaking world right now, having already established himself on the global stage. So I'm just really interested to see exactly how high these heights uh, will be that he achieves. Yeah. And thinking about his, like his success so far and just who he is as an artist i mean it feels like the comparative is to you know in terms of english-speaking artists is probably drake right i mean uh i don't know if he's exactly at drake's height but definitely on that trajectory and the way he's jumping around within genre but kind of still holding that that rapping hip-hop soul in the middle of his songs i think it sounds like right same lane to me yeah of course i mean those comparisons started pretty early on and drake famously featured on the debut album from 2018 right um 
Mia. I th- yeah, I think another notable thing with Bunny too is just he's very uh, himself with his fashion, with his mm-hmm. his mannerisms, his performance, his color of his hair, whatever it might be. He is not afraid to uh, express himself and also speak on you know social issues, uh, you know, uh, broadly, but also specifically from his home. So I think he's a very uh, important star in that regard too he doesn't take the easy way out with things um yeah so very very exciting you know i think um like i said i just want to see like what's next like he's going to be in bullet train the brad pitt movie yeah. from david leach coming out this summer like i can't wait to see him do his martial arts film debut yeah. it's going to be sick yeah no he's uh it's hard not not to like him uh, i so definitely check out this album um on Verano Senti and uh check out our nostalgia best of 2022 Spotify playlist. We'll be putting a song from Bad Bunny on there. Let's transition though to rock music or uh, I, I guess rock music, alternative rock with Sharon Von Etten, who mm. is back after a few years off with We've Been Going About This All Wrong. And we've been talking quite a bit about these female alternative rock artists over the last couple of years. Obviously, I think in terms of rock music, by far the most growing and full of interesting artists and that that sphere is. But this album, Dave, does this do anything to change your opinion of Sharon Vanen? Or does it feel just like more continued excellence? Yeah, I suppose it's more more continued excellence. It's their sixth record, first one in a few years. And I feel like she's kind of pretty established. She predates this female indie rock wave that's now the, the center of indie rock music for all intents and purposes. So I'm not sure what space she is, because like a lot of those a lot of a lot of these new people coming up that are stars in their own right, they cite her as a inspiration yeah, as, a, as a reference point you know so i i think it's a little different but uh i'm also not like the massive shared von and fan enough to really compare her records but uh, i think it is interesting to see this be the follow-up to to remind me tomorrow after a few years but uh yeah i still liked it it's i think the the better follow-up question or the follow-up question to my question should be do we care you know, if this mm. does anything to change your opinion, because I think when it comes to Sharon Von Etten, it, what she does and, and her ability to not only craft songs that are so textured and full and lived in, but also to like really craft these slow burns in a way that's super interesting and have these beautiful little flourishes that totally surprise you and but just feel so right. Um she just is a like you talked about this like elder statesman of this genre at this point and i don't know if we necessarily want her to be you know evolving out out of this i mean not that i I don't want her to be pushing herself as an artist i think there's definitely some moments on this that felt very seamy to um uh, remind me tomorrow but also at times i was like man i i really really love what she did with this flourish where these horns come in or how she built this this song up so i i think i i just left being really really pleased with the album and just impressed with 
you know, her craft is a, a singer songwriter at this point. She's, she's a master in my opinion. Um, what, what, what stood out to you about the album? What, what tracks or mm-hmm. themes? Yeah, I thought a uh, track two early on really gets you going uh, home to me just because that instrumental is like super big and epic and builds up right in the you know, track two right off the bat. Uh, that one really stood out to me. I also really enjoyed uh, the second to last track, Mistakes, just because I thought the performance from Sharon on that one is like really great. And uh, the guitar, very noticeable on that one. And then also uh, Headspace, kind of similarly, noticeable guitars, noticeable vocals, but also um, a little sprinkling of synth, which is, uh, you know, uh, random, I guess, for the rest of the record, but still effective. Those three songs really stood out to me. But like you said, overall, like Remind Me Tomorrow as well, this album is just very absorbing because that's how she performs and that's how she makes these songs where there's a lot a lot going on but it's all it's not like just throwing things at the wall it's all very specific and usually the songs really build themselves up the next thing you know there's like all these layers to the song as you said so yeah i think it's a at the very least very uh still unique in indie rock in terms of like recent releases obviously we're must listen yeah i so uh, with mistakes, and I, I agree with that what, what you, with what you just said. But with mistakes, that song reminds me probably the most of Seventeen. Actually, probably like Home to Me and Mistakes. If you mash them together, the song would be because Seventeen, her hit off of Remind Me Tomorrow, has that like slow build feel to it. But with Mistakes, you know, it, it has that like sticky or like memorable chorus that you just kind of want to sing along to or scream along to if you see her in person um even a making mistake so it's so good and then you know another song that really stood out to me is headspace the the middle uh middle song on the album um which i think it's not only the chorus to that but just like the churning nature of this felt almost like a i don't know like <laughs> a train or something like that in terms of how it built up but with these like little like guitar synth flourishes around it which i really really loved um but yeah i think i think you hit the nail on the head with some of those come back also stood out to me and far away was another standout i really loved the the distorted guitar on that and uh the, the percussion was really really interesting too you know she has like i talked about this ability to like build up a song and like texture it and i was trying to think if there's another artist that Mm. does it as well as her the only one that came to mind for me was tash sultana i don't know if you've listened to tash sultana at all um really interesting artist who uh she like keeps looping things over and over so she's just constantly like building this like cacophony of sound which is really really Mm. impressive so is there anybody that comes to mind for you that does that uh, that's a great question. I'm not. I'm not too sure. Um, definitely, probably someone who's more in like the singer slash producer side of things. Someone who's very involved yeah. in the creative process. It would have to be someone like that. But no, no one immediately comes to mind beyond yeah. obviously like just generally like you know involve people like Kanye, I guess. But like you know, it's a it, it's a good company to be in when you're this kind of artist because it's just. It's a specific way of making music, but also a really awesome way of 
kind of showing who you are and what your musical identity is because you're gonna you're gonna stand out basically by default and it was kind yeah. of cool that sharon didn't release any singles for this album too i think that's a really cool cool but confident choice yeah she seems very much just like okay with who she is and, and what she's doing and it, it always comes out good so i don't blame her um just one more note uh and i don't i can't remember if it's the opener darkness fades i think it might be the opener she her delivery and the way she sings on that reminded me so much of radiohead and i, I was wondering if maybe she was listening to something like okay computer with some of this you know mm. at times it sounds like mechanical um a little bit and i was it just felt very much like there might have been some influence to that it, the themes of it are not close to okay computer in my opinion i mean she's kind of just exploring human existence at this point in life and uh it i don't know if there's anything like super groundbreaking in terms of her observations but just the way that she crafts this is really really great so definitely you know i just wanted to mention this too if you liked any of the new taylor swift albums evermore or folklore you really should go and listen to this stuff because this is where taylor <laughs> probably got a lot of her, her like influence on that and like thoughts that i mean desner probably too also was uh, digging Sharon Von Etten while they were making that. So uh, this is really, I think, the precipice for a lot of the source. Things. Right. Uh, let's let's move on, though, to a bigger uh, alt rock. Are they just rock now? Arcade Fire? I mean, sometimes it's a bit folky, to be yeah. honest, you know, <laughs> uh, definitely a rock band for sure. Definitely a rock band. Arcade Fire uh, back for the first time in five years since everything now dropped in 2017 with their new album, We. And Dave, do we care about Arcade Fire in 2022? Oh, wow. Right off the bat. <laughs> do you care do, about Arcade Fire? Do, do I care about? You know, that's interesting because there's a lot of love for this album, broadly speaking. You know, there's advanced reviews out. The band's confident in what they've created clearly. Also, they just capped off a somewhat surprise Coachella performance that got a lot of attention as well. And it seems like people, or at least certain people, are very eager for Arcade Fire to like be, be back in the mix, of course. You know, previous winners of the Grammy for Album of the Year. And at one point or another, perhaps the biggest, you know, American oh, yeah. rock band, I would say. North American. Yeah, North American rock band. And I guess people want that back. Do I personally want that back? I guess not. You know, I don't have a lot of reverence for the classic Arcade Fire jams. However, this is definitely a lot better than everything now, which I listened to once, didn't like, and never revisited. Uh, we, yeah. We, we, we is definitely an interesting album, and that definitely counts for something when a band's been around as long as Arcade Fire has. You think about Arcade Fire in 2022, and I just want to say I care about Arcade Fire in 2022. I don't know if I hold them up on the same pedestal I did before everything now in this album. I do think this album is a good course correction for them, and definitely I'm impressed with parts of it. But, you know, The, the Suburbs is just such such a, sen uh, a seminal record. It's just one of those records you look back and you're like, any band that makes this is a band that you should care about because if they can ever recapture that, you're going to get a classic. And they haven't been able to quite recapture that. I think Reflector had moments, but 
what didn't get quite up to that um everything now like you mentioned this like foray into like disco in influence sound that was trying to talk about the present moment of political social right. and societal discourse just Most didn't really really pop music work. you know it's right definitely not what they used to make i guess we is closer to their yes. more, most heralded music at the very least but you mentioned those surprise shows and they, they've had those surprise shows not only at coachella but i think they did a, a pop-up one in new orleans and one in new york city as well so they've been been doing this a little bit and it just feels like they're kind of getting back to their roots on this uh definitely exploring and, and, and uh, more relatable themes i'd say but also i think leaning back into the songwriting style that really worked for them this like uh very conceptual uh idea you know eight they they break this up into chunks it's age of anxiety one and two end of the empire one through three and then four you know like they're they're really trying to like go for something in terms of how they, they do this and i don't know if it all really fits but i think what what they're trying to do is build these really grand big sounding songs that build up similar to what we just talked about sharon vonette and that that slow burn build up sound and when it hits, it hits. I think things like their their single Lookout Kid is just a really, really beautiful, wonderful song that's super reflective uh, of, of Wynn Butler. Um, and I, I, I really loved that one. I think there's a couple other tracks on here I really liked. And overall, I, I think this is a, a good step forward for Arcade Fire as one of these like godfathers of rock at this point, which is <laughs> kind of strange to say, but what's i mean with with where foo fighters are at the killers are obviously the 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 one who's touring and still huge and continuously doing stuff but it feels like arcade fire is really in that like they're one of the the tenants of rock at this point yeah yeah which is it's you know, kind of interesting too if you go on wikipedia and look at like the list of band members and past members mm-hmm. it's a long list of people that are no longer involved including the big uh, band uh, Will Butler, who is now leaving after being involved on this sixth album, We. And yeah, I, I think it's it's definitely a reestablishment that they're going to be around it for a very long time still, at the very least. But yeah, I think there's just a lot of at least cool moments on all these songs, even if like, you know, they, some of these songs can be a bit meandering, but they're they're trying to uh, achieve something with the concept with the storytelling so i mean it all it all makes sense to me you know i thought unconditional one lookout kid as you said kind of has like a call and response feel with the lyrics which i really enjoy and i guess makes it a good fit for a single uh but right off the bat honestly with the album age of anxiety one once there's that like switch up halfway through and you get this like electronic baseline showing up all of a sudden, I was like, wow, you know, that's a, this very specific choice. It kind of sets you up for the surprise that you can find on the production and instrumentation side of things throughout the rest of the album. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think Age of Anxiety 1 really stood out for the exact reason that you talked about. You get that uh, bass kind of dropping in there and then the synths come in and then the 
the background chorus starts singing in that really high pitched tone. It's like, oh, okay, so this is this is arcade fire here. This is where we're we're going with this. Um, yeah, I th- I think that Age of Anxiety one and two I actually thought were were both pretty good. Um, End of the Empire I I thought was interesting. You know, it's I think that that's a really like big swing because they're they're really reflecting on just like the state of I think I, I'm gonna assume American politics without them naming American politics and America just in general. And it felt it, I couldn't quite place exactly what it reminded me of. Maybe a Connor Oberst type sound, oh, wow. you know, yeah. like in terms of like how they were singing on that. But uh, eyes man. are bright. Yeah, bright. Yeah, exactly. Bright eyes sounding track. But I, I thought it was interesting. It sounded nice, but it's more toned down than a lot of the other ones we've talked about. Any other moments that you liked in this or anything else? I mean, don't they say specifically the end of the Great American Empire or something? Oh, do they? Uh, or am I just <laughs> conflating this with like the Taylor Swift song, Last Great American Dynasty or whatever it is? Off no, of, you, you might be right, I think. I'm, I'm not sure. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, I really enjoyed End of Empire 4 just for my favorite lyric on the whole album. We unsubscribe, fuck season five. Awesome line. <laughs> Uh, although I do have to say, if you unsubscribe from uh, a lot of shows that that far on, like Fair Call Saul, you're missing out. So definitely be right. watching some shows, yeah. and and yeah. We'll, we'll tell you about those. So hit that subscribe button on Nostalgia Pod. But yeah, I think I mean in general, uh, a, a course correction, Arcade Fire finding themselves again, and you, you just love to see it. So hit that uh, hit that follow on our Nostalgia Best 2022 playlist to stay tuned to the Arcade Fire Jam that will be dropped on there, as well as the LMI Jam that's going to be dropped on there. LMI, back, Dave. And it's been a while. What Was was it worth the wait for you? I think so. I had a lot of anticipation and hype for this second LMI album, partially because, as you said, it's been a long time. The LMI self-titled debut was fall 2018. And if we're really backing it up, you know, her 30p ready. That was February 2017. That's when Boot Up officially came out for the first time. That's crazy. Her, of course, her absolute monster romantic R&B smash, seven times platinum in the United States, wins uh, best R&B song at the Grammys, nominated for song of the year. And then also off that album, he had Trip, which was five times platinum. Like, she had made a huge, huge impression and kind of coming at a time where uh, female uh, UK R&B singers were having a bit of a moment alongside her peer, you know, Georgia Smith, for example. But I think it's interesting to revisit LMI now and think about where she exists, because I think she's coming out in a slightly different landscape for R&B music just because LMI is a very romantic and positive person in her music, in her R&B music. And that that's definitely different from a lot of the other stuff we get, which can be overtly toxic or at the very least sad. You know, this the, the LMI makes more or less happy music. And in general, I just think she has a lot of smashes from her early EPs and the debut album. So I just wanted to hear 
new 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 songs of the same caliber on this uh this second album which i had been anticipating so i think there are some new songs to add to the lmi canon and that's very exciting because you know when you take your time intentionally take your time to make the follow-up you really hope it hits i was blown away by this album uh i i thought it just sounded so smooth uh so beautiful and she really just has this knack for crafting songs that don't necessarily like blow you away with like a powerful voice or even like a anything like super impressive sonically but it just feels so buttery and so fun and and, and pleasurable to be in these these songs and man i i i'm so glad to have lmi back making music uh you know after the like you said a three and a half year layoff because she's she's excellent at it and she just is uh her voice is just so smooth i really love it yeah yeah i mean and she knows it too right off the bat track one trying yeah excuse <laughs> me very very specific vocal layering there mm-hmm. and i mean just just sounds great you know oh, yeah and track two not another love song she sounds good too, but now she's throwing like this big bass at you on the production mm-hmm. side of things. Yeah, I think it's very enjoyable, very smooth, as you say. But I think, like I said, lyrically, it really is worth considering how different lyrically she is from most of like the popular R&B music there is right now. Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, trying was a clear standout right from the beginning. Um, but a few tracks later didn't say with Lotto. I really yes. liked um, just beautiful. And Lotto fits so well, the way that they transition with Ella's like vocals fainting out and Lotto just coming in, but it yeah. then sounds so perfect. And they kind of like go back and forth a little bit. Uh, really, really nice. L- Lotto's having a quite the moment right now. Good for her. She's really rising because she's a good rapper. So yeah, I thought that was a very choice choice feature. Honestly, on how on how with roddy rich mm. roddy coming off a very bad disappointing album but even roddy fits in not yeah. too not too bad next to lmi you know um but uh track uh track five fallen angel that's another one that like immediately catches your ear apparently at the listening event a lot of the critics mm. were like hey can we run that one back we got to hear that again <laughs> and i think that's really because Great performance from LMI, as expected. Then halfway through, huge switch up in the song, and you get this choir. Not even like background choir, not even background vocals, just straight up choir yeah. for the rest of the song. It's it's awesome. Yeah, no, definitely an awesome moment there. Um, what other what other tracks did you like? I mean, I feel like I yeah. was writing down a lot of them as I went through, and it, it feels like there's a lot of like 2000s R&B influence mm. kind of put in, you know, and even times of like it feels very like Kanye inspired to me at points too. Like that choir you mentioned feels like something off of Pablo, for example, to me, you know, like sure. right off the first track, but what else stood out to you? I have a second, the last song sink or swim uh, oh. was nice for me. That's the thing too, about LMI. Like she, she has album cuts on all of her, her work. Like I, I really love breakfast in bed off the 30 P for example, but there's going to be a lot of songs on this that aren't singles that people are going to really dig. And even though it's a long album, there's a lot of songs on here, 15 songs. 
think it's totally fine because it's been such a long time and like there's nothing that's low effort on this at all it's all really good and she just has a natural presence with her voice that just feels like a very specific presence within r&b overall so i have nothing but good things to say really yeah same here i mean uh it's it's hard to just kind of keep saying like oh i love this track or i love this uh pieces stood out to me i really liked that but i thought the chorus was nice uh and, and just one of her like catchier ones on here um power of a woman i thought was great and that's followed up by a mess where her and lucky days have i think wonderful chemistry together and sing so beautifully on that and then you know later on leave you alone um which is right before sink or swim the one that you mentioned has that like really auto-tuned vocal thing at the end that reminded me a lot of like um college dropout kanye where he had a lot of that like like on the workout plan the let me see you work out for me like that that part just like reminded me of that and feels like she might be trying to harken back to some of the, that time. But yeah, I mean, you go through this and you're just going to have probably like six or seven songs. You just end up wanting to run back immediately. So check out Heart on My Sleeve from LMI. She's she's wonderful. She's great. Um, let's finish it up, though, with another sophomore album from Jack Harlow, who... You know, we talked about Bad Bunny earlier being the 24th most listened to artist on Spotify. Jack Harlow is the 16th, man. Right. He's huge. He's in a the superstar. US. In the U.S., yes, in the U.S. And I know that you have some, some mixed appeal, uh, some mixed feelings, I think, about Jack Harlow in terms of is he, does he deserve all of the, the acclaim he gets? And I wonder if Come Home, The Kids Miss You, did anything to change your opinion on that? Right. Well, I think more specifically, it's not that Jack Harlow has a lot of acclaim. He just has a lot of success and popularity to this point. Obviously, I really love what's popping. You know, some little song of early 2020, 2020 TikTok, pandemic TikTok, etc. It's a really good song. And Jack Harlow generally is, is a competent rapper. You know, he's, he's very technical. My thing, though, is, and what I said a lot about, that's what they all say, which came out at the end of 2020, is I just don't think the music has been there for Jack Harlow. Like, he doesn't actually have as much personality in his music as people seem to ascribe to him because they like his celebrity. And... Meanwhile, he's just rapidly ascending. He is effectively a top-tier rapper in the United States. And I just don't think it's justified in his music. There are other obvious reasons why he's gotten as big as he has. And it's nothing against the guy. I actually think he's a really nice guy. Seems like very well-intentioned. You know, he seems to be an open ally, obviously, following his collaboration with Lil Nas X on Ministry Baby. And, you know, he, he stopped drinking a year and a half ago. He moved back to his hometown of Louisville. Seems very intentional about keeping a straight arrow. And well, he's also very respectful of the space he's in, obviously, as a white guy in hip hop. But I just haven't heard the records, at least not consistently, to this point to feel like he's worthy of this very high status he has. Because I think it's 
it's very interesting to see the music he does have that's successful, the hits he does have to this point. He's basically making club hip-hop. He's making more mainstream rap music. He's not really going for the lyrical miracle crowd, you know, and he's not doing any, like, cringy, you know, things we might associate with, like, stereotypical white rappers or anything. He's making mainstream hip-hop music, and he's getting some run, like, in clubs. And it is very kind of fascinating for me to see Jack Harlow finding success making club records because no white rapper has really done that, you know? I think G-Eazy had no, uh, no limit, of course, but other than that, the white rappers that are successful, Eminem was on the radio and Mac Miller was on the internet. You know, like we haven't had someone as centrist and mainstream that was white like we have right now with Jack Harlow. So this second album, Come Home, The Kids Miss You, I definitely think it's a better record and it's a step in the right direction, but I'm still a bit, uh, a, a bit uh, lukewarm overall on the quality of his music. Sounds like Come Home, The Kids Miss You didn't change anything in your opinion on that, right? Well, the thing is, I would say Jack, he's, he's still pretty intentional with his music. I think you have to look no further than First Class, which became the number one song in the country. You know, when he released that snippet, of course, famously now, sampling Fergie's Glamorous in a very fun way, he releases the 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 preview on like his Instagram and it gets a really big response. Credit to him and his team for immediately putting the song out at the end of that very week. Oh yeah. Blows up on TikTok. Again, in a sense you could be cynical and say it's kind of like a ready made for TikTok chorus. Either way, it's a really cool sample. I like it. That at least explains to me that Jack is still pretty thoughtful about his oh, music, yeah. at least in some fashion. And the Drake comparisons that he gets from the way he actually raps, uh, they certainly aren't stopping when you have as an intentional of a release thought for a song the way Jack did with First Class. And I think there's a few more moments on the record, but there's also times where I think like when he's like trying to do his storytelling stuff, again, his bag, again, technical rapper, I just don't feel like he brings much to the table at all. Like, yeah, like he might have a witty line or, or two, but the problem is like I just don't hear the personality. You know, he has all these viral moments as a celebrity, you know, like is he flirting with Saweetie, you know, trying to holla at Doja Cat in, in, in the Instagram uh, live in general. Seems to have a, a very high approval rating with women across all races. But that personality isn't actually in the music if you really listen to it. Yeah, I mean, his personality is just like being a Mac Daddy, right? Like he just is the kind of guy who's uh, hitting on girls and trying to, you know, hook up with them. And I, I think that that's, that's relatable to a lot of the a lot of younger people who are listening to this music. Um, he has a song called Dua Lipa, which is pretty much just him, you know, macking on Dua Lipa, which is whatever. It is what it is. Uh, I I mean, I agree with you. I don't I don't know if. I don't know if this album I'm going to leave and be like, man, this is like a Dave album where just the, the way he storytells and goes into thoughtful content. No, I mean, th this is vibes, bro. And this the vibes on this are immaculate. And I, I just really enjoyed listening to this because it, it was a lighthearted listen for me where I was like, oh, I don't have to like, I can just turn my brain off and just kind of 
let uh, Pharrell drop in here for a little bit or let uh, <laughs> Snoop Dogg just drop in for like a quick like 20 second cameo and then pop back out and listen to like a, a fun beat, which I think the beats on this are, are really, really fun to listen to. So uh, I don't know. It, Jack Harlow is a, a superstar for being a superstar, not not for being a rapper. And I'm kind of cool with that. Yeah, I, I and I, again to his credit, like he really rides for the Ville, and yeah. obviously praise Bryson Tiller precedes him in that regard. However, Jack has really done a lot to shine a light on ESTG, who's rapidly rising out of Louisville as well. And like I said, his kind of open allyship as a friend of Lil Nas X is great to see as well. And like you said. I think my 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 fear is that he kind of goes a little dicky route, right? Uses rap to become a big star, and then kind of leaves it behind to do other stuff. Jack Harlow cast in the White Man Can't Jump remake. Jack Harlow though has a big body of work as a rapper, and he says he's still hip hop first. So not going to begrudge him for having taking other opportunities as they present themselves, of course. Um, I just want to continue to see, hear the growth uh, in the music. Because like for me, a song like Nail Tech, which I believe was the first single for this album, a song that got on Kanye's radar, actually, that led Kanye to pronounce Jack as top five right now and have Jack come up on Donda 2. Nail Tech for me, though, it's like, yeah, it's just kind of like a solid song. Because again, I just don't, this is not enough Jack for me in his music that it just doesn't rise above anything else I listen to. And I just feel like there needs to be a higher bar for people that kind of skip a few steps in their fame the way Jack has. Because again, the records haven't really been there consistently enough to have Jack Harlow be more popular artist in the United States than Bad Bunny, you know, to be blunt. However, like you said, Dua Lipa, whether it's a gear for TikTok or not, a relatable hook. Who else would disagree with Dua Lipa? I'm trying to do more than do a feature. It's a great line. It's a great line. And, and that's the thing, right? Is he really feels like an artist who just gears. He, he does what, what Drake does, isn't really able to do as well, which is he gears his music for the, the 20 second, 30 second snippet that is TikTok, right? Like right. You, you talk about nail tech, and there's that, that line in the middle. I forgot what it is. Like, da 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 da, but I'm fly though. Da, right. da, da. And it's just like, you can just see so many people making a TikTok with that as like the, the song in the background, like either dancing to it or like cutting things together. And you're like, yeah. oh yeah, like this makes total sense. Like, why? someone who does it like who someone who comes up with this like is successful because it's so catchy for a small right. amount of time and then you can kind of get out and people aren't going to be like it's it's the willow smith effect too same thing where it's like mm. you listen to those willow smith songs pretty forgettable the, the first it's time but when you take a vibe seconds, yeah exactly you take a 30 second clip and you're like is this the greatest <laughs> song ever made because it might be this might be some right. sketchy song i've ever heard right and and there's definitely something to that of course you know drake Drake might not be as successful on TikTok per se. I mean, big on TikTok, obviously it's Drake, but like Drake's Drake's pen though is yeah. significantly more advanced oh, yeah. than Jack's. Yes. That's why Drake runs Instagram captions, you right. know, slightly exactly. different, but also a more uh, impressive skill 
to be uh-huh. honest. I, I, I think we also need to, I think at this point, analyze that finding success on TikTok at times can be low-hanging fruit. And if oh, you're having sure. that dictate the creative direction of your songs or your record as a whole, I don't know how commendable that actually is. So, like I said, it's definitely an improvement and and all that. But, I, you know, I just, I, I still want to hear a bit more. I, I, I think for me, some of the slower tracks on this that probably be more, more popular with women, I think that's for me where Jack really loses me because that's where I'm like, ah, man, like, you're you're pretty good. You're pretty good at a about at flow and stuff. Yeah, you know. I think um on a what's it the, the one with smile in the title? What's it? Uh, I do anything to make you smile. I do anything to make you smile. I think his his flow on that's awesome. The Golden yeah. Corral line, the Rick Pitino line, like when he's doing that, like more fun, uh, up tempo rap. I guess kind of in vain. Like what's popping? That's where I'm really with it. I think there's really fun tracks. But like when he tries to slow it down and get in the other side of the Drake comparisons, I, I just don't think he has that in him right now, despite how many people romanticize him. Yeah. I'd do anything to make you anything to make you smile. Uh has that Ed Sheeran line, which I really like. I, I don't remember exactly what it was, but it, it it's like in the second half and it really mm-hmm. made me laugh. Yeah. Um I, I love that the track before I mentioned Young Harleezy. That that Snoop Dogg drop and just the the, the overall vibes nice. on that song is just like really really fun. Um, you know, I don't think all the features on this work so great. Uh, Justin Timberlake totally forgettable. I feel like yeah. on this, which you know, unfortunately for Justin Timberlake, feels like a lot of his career recently. I, I kind of wanted more from that too. Justin Timberlake, of course, from Memphis, not too far from Jack yeah. and the Ville, would like to hear them do something else. You know, because in a sense, there's a lot of parallels the justin timberlake's rise to fame that we have now with jack uh but yeah i mean in a sense i was like oh nice nice to hear justin timberlake you know and come to think of it probably do for another album from him he hasn't made a pandemic album yet man in the woods yeah you we'll see if he's still that? in the woods i don't know yeah, i don't know if he's still in the woods don't don't drop it please please not uh <laughs> honestly though churchill downs not what i expected obviously that's the much valued feature uh, Drake feature on the album, a song that leaked much to both their disappointment. And it's not what I expect because I thought it would just kind of be like a radio play, a fun, a fun rap song. It's not really that. Yeah. It's more about a rapping as rap song. This is like Drake on like Weston Road flows exactly. or something, yeah. you know, and or uh, six a.m. on Braille Path off Lover Boy or something, you know. And I think that's where Jack is also showing. It's like, hey, I do, I do rap. And Drake actually wanted to rap for me. And that also counts for something. Yeah, I, I thought that was I thought that was pretty good. Um I, I just going back to the features, the, the Pharrell track, the, the production on it feels like a Pharrell track, but I didn't know if there's anything that really popped on that for me. Yep. But the, the track after the Pharrell track, Little Secret, I think that's one of those toned down ones that you talked about didn't really hit as much for you. But I could see that being a song that we hear everywhere especially for that that verse where he's like, I know that you hate it, 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 whatever he finishes with, where it's like being famous or being high or what, you know, he kind of switches up from verse to verse. But I think that one's probably going to be one that will blow up everywhere. Um, yeah, I mean, what else stood out to you about this album? Any other thoughts on it? I think the one line I, I enjoy, I actually forget what song it's on. 
Uh, I'm on August Cloud 9 or something like that. Shout out August Cloud. Shout out Euphoria. And the first class video yeah. uh, stars Anita, the uh, uh, Latin star. thought that was a nice choice there. Um, yeah, like I said, it's an improvement. And I like Jack. He seems like a really good guy. He's a fun celebrity, no doubt. Um, yeah. And I hope that the he sticks with music, first and foremost, and he continues to get better. Because songs like First Class, at the very least, do exhibit some kind of you know special special talent. And whether that was all the producer or Jack was super involved with that, I, I can't say. But that really showed me that there's still, I think, more to back it up where some of the other songs, albeit competent and all that, are still a little bland to me. But First Class, I was like, okay, yeah, like he's definitely advancing. So I want to see that continue. He's got such good ad libs that that moment on first class where like it drops in and he's like, uh-huh. I, I just find myself saying that all the time just because it's like mm-hmm. <laughs> it's such a good ad lib. <laughs> you find yourself saying uh, sweet, sweet semen as much? <laughs> not 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 nearly as much, but you know, yeah, I'm I'm not ruling it out quite yet. Yeah. So. You, uh, you got your pineapple juice game on so. <laughs> <laughs> uh anything. <laughs> uh it's too early for this. We're, uh, we're going to be moving on, but follow our Nostalgia Best of 2022 playlist. Uh, we're going to be switching to the world of the Lakers and winning time, the rise of the Lakers dynasty. Uh, first season wrapping up on HBO. A lot of, uh, I don't know if controversy is the right word, but a lot of talk around the, the depiction of some characters in this season. We we reviewed the, the first episode. You can go back and check that out. But Dave, now we've seen the full thing. Do you feel like Winning Time was able to tell this story in mm. a way that held true to the story, but also was entertaining? It's definitely entertaining. <laughs> and I would say it was definitely controversial. I don't think there's any debate about whether it was controversial or not, whether it was justified or not. It's a different story. But I think more than anything else, it lived up to my expectations because I think this show is a last and has a lot of great performances and there's so much real life drama here that is in fact true that even if some of it's not true i couldn't care less honestly i'm not watching a documentary you know they mess they, they change things around and remember the titans no one seems to care about that do they <laughs> you know uh yeah i really enjoyed wing time which we know is season one season two is coming and it kind of gets you thinking about huh are they gonna do like five years five seasons of the show about five real life nba seasons are they going to skip ahead are they eventually going to like make the show an anthology and do a whole different era about the lakers or a different team don't know but right now where we're at now i think it's a, a real good time you know john c Riley as dr bus and quincy isaiah as magic johnson both yeah. dynamite performances absolutely and you know i I think there's a lot of good good performances in this um, and a lot that I want to talk to. But those two are are far and away, I think, the, the two that stand out. You know, the the big hook on this when we first got it was Adam McKay, executive producer. And, you know, he directed the first episode. I actually almost feel like Adam McKay uh, not directing the rest of it worked out really well you know mm. you have those those adam mckay flourishes in the first episode and it's it's a little heavy-handed at points and i feel like as the season goes on they kind of start 
going to a more traditional, but kind of keeping some of those flares here and there, you know, a couple of the like quick cuts or like, you know, like talk to the camera moments, things like that. But overall, they kind of work it out, work those flourishes out. And I think that actually works to tell because this story is interesting enough as is. You don't really need all the like, you know, talk to the camera moments, breaking the fourth wall moments to make this interesting. And the story is dynamite. I mean, like it, we all kind of anyone that follows the NBA, I think, kind of knows a lot of the hubbub around the stuff, not all the intricate details of, right. of everything. But it's it's there's enough in here where you don't really need to put these flourishes in. Do, do, you, do you agree with that? Or did you feel like you missed those flourishes as the season went on? No, I, I totally agree. And like you said, uh, Dr. Buss magic, the look at the camera directly speak to the camera. <laughs> Memorable moment where uh, Dr. Buss in his anger, like punches the kit, the, the, the fake cameraman and the camera falls to the ground. You what are you like, looking the, at? Yeah. You have like these uh, filmmaking flourishes where like a different film stock is used or at least presented and gets all grainy for a second. I think it's completely fine uh, because, you know, we're also in the late 70s into the 80s. So it's just going to have like a a period detail to it overall. You know, the the basketball uniforms, not the uniforms they wear today, slightly different, you know, Um, no, no cell phones. Right. We're in a different time. So there's already enough to like make it feel different and also foreign to younger people that like i don't we we didn't need any anything extra because like you said there's already so much meat on the bone and there's so much drama that yeah it's completely fine as is so you know you mentioned that controversy who who do you feel like is justified in in maybe their dis dislike of the portrayal of them on the show right i mean well obviously the, all the headlines are about jerry west played by jason clark Jerry West announcing that he will be suing HBO and, and Warner, Warner Discovery now, if he doesn't get a retraction from HBO. And HBO basically fired back and said they they stand by the show, they stand by the book it's based off, the Jeff Perlman Showtime book, but also said that there are some things dramatized. And we'll see if we get anything else. I mean, you know, Bill Plaschke in the LA Times, Mark Stein, a lot of NBA, Bob Ryan, a lot of NBA people that were there at the time are up in arms about this. Kareem himself, to the surprise of no one, did chime in as well. Um, and it seems to be Jerry West is the main thing people are focusing on, which is kind of funny because Dr. Buss is portrayed as his reputation entails uh, in, in, in real life as a philandering misogynist oh, yeah. man. But that's also what I think everyone understood about about Dr. Buss and people don't really have a whole lot to say about that at least not as much as they do about Jerry West and Jerry West is portrayed as very uh, angry or at least prone to having having a meltdown and and, or tantrum of some kind and for me you know I I fell behind on the show a little bit and I caught up and like I caught up after more and more headlines and and anger come out I was like oh is there gonna be like another like big big bus thing or a, a big west thing that happens and no like nah, it, it's just basically what's established from the early on and there's really nothing new and i think it's just people are don't like what they see or is this like i understand jerry west who's still a living person being like that's not me fuck you this this hurts and then people that know him feeling the same way but like i don't really think it's that justified because i think it's a great performance and 
if you're gonna s- sprinkle a, li- a little fiction in, that's fine because you're gonna do that regardless. And also, the fact that he's that this mad about this makes you think that hmm, maybe he got really mad about other things too, such as what we see on the show. Who knows? Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I think I think he. I, I can understand that early season portrayal of him being upset with that. I mean, it's depicting him having, you know, mental health issues, which I, I don't know if he's been open about that or not. Um, it, it, it really made him look like he was, I, I want to say like being a big baby, but like kind of just being a big baby at times, like especially when he didn't get his way in terms of who he wanted to draft and things like that. But I actually right. think as the, as the series on goes grief. on, yeah, I think as the series goes on, West is kind of portrayed as this person who was kind of like the overseer of like keeping things together. And I, I think uh, I think his portrayal gets toned down a bit from the like cartoonish, you know, portrayal at the very beginning of the season. So, I, I mean, I can understand why he's upset, but I don't I don't think it's that bad. Um, but, you know, like you said, it does make you think maybe this guy doesn't have as thick of a skin as you might think. Uh <laughs> When, when you hear this right. coming out um you know in terms of the jerry west thing i mean very open about his, his philandering ways in the show uh, jerry where, West. sorry sorry yes jerry bus thank you don't please don't sue me jerry west uh i'll, I'll retract <laughs> it if you want um <laughs> but that, that scene where uh genie comes up to him in the restaurant as a child and he's getting a hand job from this woman, I, I was just like blown away by that. I was like, whoa, this is, I mean, if, if anyone's going to have an issue, I feel like it would be Jerry Buss and, and his family, obviously at this point, since Jerry Buss is deceased. But right. um, that was like the moment I was like, ooh, that's pretty bad. Right. I think also too, it's important to note that like the timeline here is a bit, bit fumbled. Like Jeannie was not around oh, the yeah. team in a professional capacity at this time. This is like several years before she actually was involved with the team. On the other hand, I think the performance is awesome and the character is, is very strong. I think an important part of the show. I really like this, like the genie character we have here, even if it's kind of fictional. So, yeah, I feel like the Bus family, you know, they probably don't care quite as much because Dr. Bus is, is no longer with us, you know? Also, it's not like most of his behavior is acceptable. So, do you really want to go out and def- well, I guess in that sense, you'd be like, oh, well, that's he didn't do that. But no, no one's going to say that because we know he did this. So, you know, I also think uh, Jeannie Buss, who does own and run the Lakers, she's also been the public eye so long that she probably just doesn't care. And she can, yeah. you know, not off and say, I didn't watch it. You know, Magic <laughs> himself hasn't said a whole lot about this, except to promote his uh, his own kind of series that he's created that no one seems to have any interest in. But yeah, you know, they're famous people. They're used to this stuff. It kind of just brushes off them. I was surprised to see Kareem, honestly, have a strong uh, bother to wait in, I guess. Not that he wouldn't have a take or an elegant thing to say, but just that like he would actually concern himself with this too. Yeah, I mean, he's, uh, he's a thoughtful guy and very outspoken. You know, uh, speaks up about a lot of like social political issues, which is, I think is fantastic. Become a really good writer in this like yeah. uh, stage of his the life. show's very about that too, about the yeah. multitudes that was pre Bill Jabbar. Yeah, and actually, if anything, I I I think that there's more to explore with that. So I'm really glad we're getting a second season because I think Kareem's uh, Kareem and the magic dynamic and how magic is obviously going to be the one 
kind of leading the team in future seasons as Kareem's career is, you know, moving to a different stage is going to be a really interesting dynamic. I, I, I actually, one of my favorite moments in the season was like in those middle episodes when magic started taking on Kareem and really like standing mm-hmm. up to him and trying to like get him to buy into the team and, and kind of move past these like begrudging kind of uh, grumpy ways that he had at that point around basketball and his perception of how he saw himself within the game. I, I thought that was really, really fascinating. Yep. Um, and obviously I think the standout storyline is the the coaching stuff, the McKinney Westhead, Pat Riley trio and, and how they figured out who was going to do that. Now, not totally accurate to how it went down, but I think they, they made it very, very uh, captivating in the show. Oh, totally. As soon as Tracy Letts shows up as Jack McKinney, the show really elevates. Yeah. Because at that point, too, we get a whole new storyline, a lot more drama established, and we don't spend quite as much time with Magic's personal life, which was like very heavy in the early yeah. part of the season. And again, I love Quincy Isaiah. I think he's fantastic as Magic, and you need a good performer and the right performer to be Magic, given everything that was magic johnson's is a very famous person almost right away but once we have this other dynamic going on beyond magic and the bus family and it's this coaching drama that's building up uh, i think the show really elevates and you know seagull's Westhead. i don't know how accurate that portrayal is but for the for the show's purposes the mckinney Westhead dynamic is very successful and then riley joining in and becoming more confident in his abilities and what he wants from the game after retirement also is really awesome. Now, Adrian Brody as Riley early on, it's not quite as like confident cocksure as we associate with Pat Riley today. However, I only know Pat Riley as an older man that puts his rings on the table and tells people to join his team. Like I don't know about early Riley. Like, so in the sense, I get why some people could be frustrated with things that are changed is because this is going to shape the opinion of a lot of people that were not alive in the 1980s and only know about all of this secondhand anyway. So I understand that. But for the sake of narrative dramatic television, everything with the coaching staff and those three actors is spot on. Yeah, I, I agree. And um, I, I really love the dynamic. You know, <laughs> I love when... Uh... When Siegel as uh, Westhead uh, has the the medical emergency, it's a yeah. is that a kidney stone? Is that it what is. it is? Yeah. It is. And uh, man, that that whole that whole episode where you know Pat Riley's trying to get Westhead to like make a decision, like you're not gonna like let me go, right? And then like Westhead's feeling so uh, loyal to McKinney, it's just really really well done. And then you know I I think the the stuff with um so it's cast switch gears i think the stuff with jerry bus and his mom while i don't know if it totally lands does kind of build out bus as a character beyond uh you know just being this philandering you know ridiculous like businessman which i think Mm -hmm. is is necessary for the show but um you know i don't know if that totally hit home did that totally work for you yeah like you said i think that you understand why it's there for the character and when you have Sally Field, of all people, right. elevating the material like only she can, mm-hmm. it's pretty forgivable for me. Um, you know, I don't mind at the end, too, because we're still getting a lot of stuff with the team and everything we are getting with the team and the coaching staff is like fairly juicy and like 
important feeling that I don't mind. Also, because like you can see where it's going, you know, this is not going to be a plot line like next season or anything. So, well, especially because she's dead now. So, <laughs> right. Um, yeah, you know, I, I, I guess like I just wanted to like see for you a lot of a lot of the talk before the show was about who was playing Jerry Buss with John C. Riley being tapped and Will Ferrell being very upset with Adam McKay about this to the point where their friendship at this point seems to not to be non-existent. Could you have seen Will Ferrell as Jerry Buss in this? I mean, I could have seen it. It would just be a completely different show. Yeah. And I don't really want that show. Riley has dramatic chops, much more effective than Will Ferrell's dramatic chops, which we've seen in bits and fits and starts. Riley is great as this. He can do the comedic stuff. He can do the gregarious stuff. And he can do the dramatic stuff too. Yeah. And he also looks the part of the doctor. So, yeah, yeah I, I thought he was spot on as this. And you really need this performance to work for this version of Winning Time that they made, without question. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, Will Ferrell, I think, if, if he was cast, would have brought, made this a little bit more cartoony. Um, and the, the dramatic moments would not have hit nearly as much. So mm-hmm. um, definitely, I think, made the right call. Although, definitely sad to see um, that him and McKay are still, it seems to have still not have resolved this. Um, what other thoughts do you have on this season? I mean, I'm looking forward to season two, but what else stood mm-hmm. out to you? Well, I think just like the depth of the, the, the cast is like really impressive, you know? We, we made a lot about John C. Rowley's awesome. Quincy Isaiah and Solomon Hughes as Magic and Kareem. Very important bits of casting. They did an awesome job. We mentioned uh, Jason Clark, who, whether you think it's accurate or offensive or not, I think Jason Clark's awesome as this version of Jerry West. Uh, Brody, Lett, Siegel, Gabby Hoffman as Claire Rothman, I thought was awesome. Uh, Devon Nixon, the son of Norm Nixon, playing his dad. Very impressive. Yeah. Uh, Hadley Robinson as Jeannie, really good. Then you have all these completely overqualified people in these very small roles. We've mentioned Sally Field as Dr. Buss's mom. You have recent Emmy winner Julianne Nicholson as Cranny, Jack mm-hmm. McKinney's wife. And really, it's just her being the wife character. There's not much to it. Rob Morgan is there as Magic's dad, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, even Molly Gordon, a rising actress, is just like one of the employees at the at the team that's interfacing with Jeannie. Like, there's a lot of a lot of talent here, and you know, in season two, they bring in, they'll bring in more people for new characters as as the story goes in real life. Um, we'll have that, I'm I'm sure a lot of a lot of additional A listers joining. Very exciting, for sure. And you know that uh, the the Boston LA dynamic is going to be played up as they're going to be. Um, fighting for titles here in the 80s. Uh, you know, like Chicklist says, our, our back is here. Exactly. Um, w- you know, <laughs> a moment that really stands out to me and made me laugh, but also I just was like, this is this is the type of McKay stuff that I'm glad wasn't more in the show is that scene, I think it's in episode eight or nine when they, they show that the uh, Celtics lost in the playoffs to the, uh, the 76ers and Larry Bird looks at Magic through the TV and says, see you next year shithead or whatever he says to him and i think the larry bird like portrayal of this is like so ridiculous but also kind of fun like they're, they're just making him a complete villain which is like okay yeah. sure like from the, the perspective of the the hero of this story it makes sense that they would do that mm-hmm. but it's, it's a really funny 
portrayal to me. Yeah, totally. I mean, they they have him walking around, dipping into a Budweiser can, <laughs> always drinking beer, which we knew that early days Larry did yeah. drink a lot which, mm-hmm. to the detriment of his playing career. Um, but I like that because they also still bring in the real life stuff too about how Magic was pitted against Larry and Larry was propped up as the great white hope for the NBA and, and, and middle America, you know, mm-hmm. the success of the league. They don't shy away from that, which is like the real important thing with this whole dynamic in the early days. So I thought that they're going to make uh, Larry Bird a bit of a caricature. I don't care because it's not it's not a Celtic show anyway. So what's it matter? Yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, uh, uh, just one other moment that really stuck out to me, I thought was like a cool moment that kind of made my jaw drop in a sense was when they were figuring out how they're going to sell the Lakers and how they what what vibe they wanted to give uh around the team and they they come up with the idea of the laker girls right these these dancers who are not your traditional cheerleaders at that time and how paula abdul was the person who kind of led the original laker girls true totally blew my mind uh jaw jaw dropping moment for someone who was not aware of that and just like it makes you just want to dive into more about this story so i thought that was really well done how they dropped that in Right. And I think that that's what's cool too about this real life story and its setting is that you're just prone to having all these really cool and fun cameos and small paroles, whether it's Paul Abdul, effectively by chance being in this story, or Jack Nicholson in his heyday mm-hmm. being Jack, or Richard Pryor coming around and perhaps tempting uh, Spencer Haywood a little bit too much, you know? Uh, I love seeing that, like the, the LA of it all. They don't shy away from either, so I'm looking forward to more of that too. Once the showtime is showtime, and it's super hot, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think we're both looking forward to season two. Highly recommend catching up on this if you care about basketball or even just like drama in general. I think you can enjoy this, but um, definitely really, really uh, fun first season of Winning Time. Uh, Dave, you ready to move on? Let's go to Disney, Disney Plus. We're going to start on the the small screen before we get to the big screen. And Moon Knight season one has wrapped up uh, Oscar Isaac leading this show. Dave, we we reviewed the first episode. I think there was some hope that this was going to be a a bit of a a change up for the Disney Plus uh, Marvel MCU TV shows. Did season one deliver on that that promise for you? Mm. Well, it's definitely different than the previous four live-action MCU Disney Plus series. That's that's for sure. And it's not really connected at all to the greater canon, which is nice, because that was kind of all that was propping up Hawkeye for even existing, for example. So it's not any of that. It's definitely different. And I respect that creative decision for Marvel. That being said, Moon Knight and the end just didn't come together for me. And I found it just kind of lacking in the, it's just not as compelling as I wanted it to be, which is a big disappointment for, you know, a premise featuring Oscar Isaac and Ethan Hawke about a man possessed by an Egyptian god in the presence of a lot of Egyptian mythology and stuff like, oh on paper sounds pretty fun and at least interesting for for an mcu property tackle but i i just didn't really enjoy the 
back half of the series, you know, and like they, they go in a high, super high concept direction kind of takes you by surprise starting with episode four. I respect it for trying to do something different, but I just really wasn't as compelled as I wanted to be by this show. I think it has a lot of the same problems that some of these other show, uh, Disney plus MCU shows have, which is they, they go for something or they have an idea of what they want to go for and they can execute it to a point. But it seems like in the end, everything kind of comes back to being what the MCU and Marvel kind of is, which is, you know, a CGI punch fest a lot of the time. And Mm. um, while some of that, that stuff I think worked to some degree, there were just moments where I found myself kind of like eye rolling. Right. And you think about the finale and like all these ideas they're trying to like kind of wrap up and you know you get this like these two egyptian gods having this fight at the end and i i I feel very uninvested like not invested in either one of them to be honest and it it just felt like okay i i want to see how like the oscar isaac ethan hawk aspect plays out more i thought the episode five were felt just like an episode of legion in a lot of ways Mm, um was was playing out i was like there's something to this where i feel really mind fucked about like what's what's actually going on and what's not in this sense and i, I would have dug a little bit more of this in the season i i understand why they didn't want to just copy legion and have the same exact concept but there's something to that especially with this character who is dealing with the idea uh, dissociative uh personality disorder where it's uh you know there's a lot more to explore there and i just feel like they kind of like i don't know pulled their punches at times to just fit into mm-hmm. the mcu yeah and i think there's just a lot of missed opportunities with it too you know the man uh bark specter slash stephen grant possessed by Kanshu, egyptian god that should have been a lot more fun it's not as fun yeah. as like venom in the head of tom hardy you know it's just not that fun it's not that cool and it should have been. It's kind yeah. of lame. Kanchu as a character just, I think, didn't really grab me that much. I just right. kind of found him annoying. Yeah, I guess the be- the best element for me is like how you learn about the the origin of Mark Spector and how Stephen Grant uh, kind of conjured up this alter ego in the face of domestic trauma as a child. Yeah. Okay, nice little twist, nice little fake out given how much time we had spent with both personalities without really knowing what's going on. Not too bad. Uh, but I think that it, it just never truly like grapples well enough with like the Egyptian mythology. Like we have that, that when we're introduced to all the other gods and like their avatars and stuff, but, like it should be a big moment for the series and, and for the MCU. And it's just not, you know, like it, it just, it's not cool. It also is not consequential. All the other fucking avatars seem to be dead, and I don't really even know what the status is of the other gods. You know, it's kind of unclear yeah. too. But I just I would have rather the show be a lot grander, or at least committed to the weirdness that you said is kind of like Legion, because that would just feel a bit transgressive for the MCU standards. But it can't go that way either, because we have to have our CGI fight in the final episode, as you said. So. You know, one uh, observation I saw pointed out, I didn't really make this connection myself, but they kind of 
haphazardly established that Mark Spector is Jewish, which has comic roots. And I think, honestly, when the Moon Knight character was created in the comics, he wasn't established as Jewish. And later writers kind of made him Jewish because he had been given a Jewish last name kind of inadvertently. Regardless, Jewish in the comics, they make him Jewish in the show. But they don't actually grapple with the fact that this follower of the Jewish faith is possessed by the god of a different religion. And he learns without a shadow of a doubt that these other gods from a different religion are in fact real. There's no Mm -hmm. grappling with his faith. And I thought that would, at the very least, be very interesting to see. And there's definitely a lot of me on that boat. So kind of an interesting uh, missed opportunity. You would never think Marvel would even present something like that. That, that's a good point. I hadn't really thought about that. And, you know, I, I think it, it just kind of goes to show not only is this, I guess, a six episode uh, season of television uh, a bit limited in terms of the time, but where they choose to kind of use that time to explore things. And I think it would have been really interesting for them to not only have him trying to figure out what these two identities are and, and kind of I don't know, synthesize them together or, or come to accept both of them together, but also like how those identities are impacted by that part of his identity and, and this realization uh, would have been really fascinating and would have been a huge swing for Marvel. Um, you know, you think about like some of the moments they chose to explore and things that they didn't. I mean, we get so much time in, in the first like episode where he's like in the museum and like, you know, having this like big fight, which I, I mean, certainly I think for the first episode, you have to have something that grabs people and makes people excited for some of the action that's about to come ahead this season. But I really would have loved to have gotten a little bit more of like Mark and, and Hawk actually just like talking and like exploring <laughs> these ideologies. And like, it, obviously, like Kanchu has one perspective and I forget who um, who Ethan Hawk was possessed uh, by. Amit? Amit? Yes. And like, I get that, like, the idea of, like, judging people based on future crimes, but is this person really, like, seeing into the future? Is this God able to mm. see that and see that these people are oh, going the to be scales. Bad? Yeah. Yeah, right. and, like, is that going to actually, like, like, I think there's a lot to debate there, you know, a little bit more than, like, the Thanos is crazy. It's like, well, you know, some people think Thanos might have had a point, so maybe there's a way to, like, <laughs> explore that, like, these ideas aren't totally bad even if they're a bit deranged in some ways based on Mm. the way we currently see things i also think they just never really leaned into what they wanted the show to be and when they when they committed to something for an episode i think it really worked like the the tomb heist episode i thought was really really fun and i was like i wish they had almost just committed to this being like a like a national treasure type thing almost in some ways it could have been a little bit more interesting but like Marvel things, it's a little bit of everything and never really what you totally want to be. Right. I mean, also think about it too, we don't actually get a whole lot of Moon Knight as Moon Knight. He's barely in the suit, you yeah. know? Yeah. And I think, I think to some people, seeing a very protracted Moon Knight origin with very little Moon Knight is probably just not appealing, you know? And I, there's some criticism of the CGI. I didn't really mind it, but you can you notice it a little bit, I guess. Um, May Kalamaway as Layla, kind of a light character as well to the very end until she becomes the, the Scarlet Scarab, which looked pretty cool. Are you an that. Egyptian superhero? 
Right. What? <laughs> Here's our representation. Yeah. It's great and all, but like just kind of ham fisted. Yeah. Um, yeah, man. I just, at the end of the day, I was like, man, Oscar Isaac and Ethan Hawke, two of our great actors, they're just fucking slumming it, man. Just not like special material. It's just, just disappointing. I gotta say, when, when the season ended and then you had that, that mid credit scene where right. Hawk is in the, you know, mental, uh, mental health facility and gets wheeled out and they're like, it, it seemed like they were going to like be saving him for a season two. I was like, is Ethan Hawk really going to do a season two of this? Like, is he <laughs> really going to commit to this? And, and then, then no, uh, you know, you get the reveal that there's another identity, Jack Lockley or Jake Lockley, who I think a lot of people actually associate most with Moon Knight. So yeah, I think there that, were some hints in the series too. Yeah. So I think that sets it up nicely for, uh, you know, what the showdown of the second season will be Jake Lockley versus right. Mark and Steven. But uh, I was glad that I think, hawk kind of closed the door on the second season right important to note too there is no like second year option on isaac's contract he is not currently uh on hold with marvel at all for a second season and there's no second season announced the other eps of the series like muhammad diab they have no idea if they're making a second season or not despite obviously nods to making another one so we'll get moon knight in some form i have to imagine but I think reception and popularity of the series will probably dictate whether that's a season two of the series or perhaps an appearance in some other property, like a movie or another series, you know, whether that's uh, Oscar Isaac again or just Layla, who can say, you know, so it seems like there's a lot of TBD with that, or at least they're keeping their cards close to the vest. You know, we, we got announcement of Loki season two, like the first weekend after the finale came out. So very different circumstance this time around. Um, but at the very least, I do give him credit for making a show that was very self-contained oh, yeah. within the MCU. It, it is refreshing. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think they at least were like going for something here, you know, exploring different aspects of, of the world and, and of the MCU world. So give them a lot of credit. Up next in the the DC, or sorry, not DC, in the MCU TV series is Mrs. Marvel. Are you excited? I think it'll be cool, excuse me, just because the Kamala Khan character is very popular, but because it's a very young character, I hope it's all ages fair and not for kids. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I'm I'm <laughs> cautiously optimistic, but we'll see. I'm not, not exactly sure what to expect with it quite yet. So Disney is usually tries to do everything for everyone so i'm sure that they'll try to rope a little bit in but it feels like it could be a kid's show happening why don't we switch gears to the from the small screen to the big screen where this past thursday dr strange in the multiverse of madness finally dropped and dave sam raimi behind the the camera for this one directing this a lot of hype for this. This had been pushed back. Was supposed to be coming out before Spider-Man Into the Spider or uh, Spider-Man No Way Home. So uh, you know we're uh, we're kind of getting this not in the order that they first expected. Did this movie? Did Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness really take you into the Multiverse of Madness? Do you feel like it went as crazy as you expected? That's a great question. I would say it's not as multiversal as you're led to believe really only in a few different universes in this 
and we see all these flashes of all these other things very briefly, but we're not really in anything too crazy. But I did enjoy my time with this film. Very messy film, a lot going on. But I think it's pretty fun if you just kind of roll with it and try not to overanalyze its muddled plot. Yeah, I, I thought that this was a lot of fun. Um, I, I think that there's some really, really, really cool and inventive moments and in some times when you're just like, man, Sam Raimi and the way that he thinks of things and how inventive and creative he is, is just like singular. And then there were times when I was like, he can't totally escape the MCU though. You know, there's still right. times when he's got to kind of play the game. So uh, I think there's a lot to like in it and a lot to not like. Why don't we start with the things that we thought really, really worked? Right. What, what did you like about this? Well, I think that's a good place to start is Sam Raimi, of course, his return to superhero films after, for all intents and purposes, establishing where we are today with this Tobey Maguire Spider-Man trilogy. But Raimi at least does as well a job as Kevin Feige and friends will let you do with putting your own stamp on a Marvel movie. And he picks his spots well. Obviously, he really does no say on most of the plot and conclusions and stuff. But Raimi brings a lot of his talents, apart from Spider-Man, obviously, as a horror film director. And he really uh, I think brings a lot of that in, in a uh, pretty compelling way for MCU standards, you know, whether it's like the a twist on like the Hall of Mirrors or overtly like demonic stuff towards the end. Like I I I quite enjoyed him at least trying his best to uh sprinkle in some less familiar elements to the MCU. He's not the first one to put a stamp on a movie. I think Kugler and Black Panther comes to mind, of course, and what TT and Thor Ragnarok as well, and I guess James Gunn. But apart from them, it's been a little while since we've had someone really kind of stand out as a director on this. Chloe Zhao tried with Eternals, you know, natural lighting and all, but didn't really work out in the end. But I think Raimi, he uh, certainly brought his uh, his skills to this film. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I think when you think about Sam Raimi, a few of the things that really come to mind are the, the the essence of horror but also the, his take on action and like making action still like fun and lighthearted and it doesn't have to be totally like uh totally serious all the time and i think you get a lot of that in both of these not only like you talked about like the demonic uh aspects of the ending but there are times when this movie is just straight up scary you know like uh, that that scene where wanda is chasing them through that tunnel and then they're like kind of like trapped where like underneath the the bridge or, or wherever the water is. And you're just like, where is Wanda? Like that, that moment is like truly scary. Um, you know, I, I think the way that he portrays uh, like the fight scene between Dr. Strange and evil Dr. Strange is really, really inventive. And that take in the, to that point I was talking about where, you know, conceptualizing lighthearted, like fighting and violence using the the score and the music that's being played as a way of like conceptualizing the the fight i just thought was like absolutely brilliant and so mm -hmm. cool and i i literally just like had a huge smile watching it i was like this is something i'd never seen or never even thought of in a movie and this is why this guy is so yeah. great 
Right. And it kind of reminds me of what I liked a lot about Scott Derrickson's Doctor Strange, the first film, mm-hmm. which introduced us as a character straight up. And you know, I think some people kind of view that as a bit of uh, archetypal origin story per MCU standards, very similar to how Iron Man functions in the early Stephen Strange characterization, pretty similar to Tony Stark. But visually, the first Doctor Strange is very fun and cool. And I think that, and Derrickson, I'm also a horror filmmaker, that probably factors into this, but they know that they can at least attempt to dress up something cool and interesting with Doctor Strange, given what that character's powers are in in the universe. So they do it. And and Raimi, just super capable at this. And like you said, the, the music fight, I thought was was spectacular. Just one of the most interesting pieces of combat there's been in the entire MCU. Oh, be yeah. honest usually the fighting the cgi fighting in act three not people's favorite moments mm-hmm. in marvel properties this is a rare exception and and even thinking about that beforehand in a, a bit more of a terrifying take on the the action is when wanda is facing the illuminati which we'll we'll talk a little bit more about the illuminati in a little bit and what that might mean for the mcu but uh just the way that she goes about defeating them and actually killing them i thought was uh at least inventive although definitely more violent and a little bit more harrowing uh you know seeing reed richards just get turned into uh noodles is a tough tough look in in a lot of ways (laughs) you know uh i forgot who the the guy who can kill someone with just his voice is but uh black um, bolt the inhumans guy (laughs) the way black bolt dies is really really rough but yeah i mean i think there's there's a lot of like inventiveness in terms of the action how these Mm. these heroes are are utilizing their powers um yeah and you know i think to kind of keep on the raimi aspect i also think the way that this movie looks while there's sometimes when it feels i think a bit um mcu-ish i i think you can definitely feel his his camera work and his touch throughout you know there's a lot Mm. of like close-ups and I, i i a lot of like ways that the camera moves about through the action that feels very in line with him kind of putting it like right in the person's face like shaking it feeling like you're in the scene a lot of the times which i Mm. think really stood out to me as well what else did you like about the movie what else worked for you uh yeah so i think a creative decision for the mcu that was smart was to lean into wanna maximoff as a villain because WandaVision, the series, the first Disney Plus MCU series, did not redeem Wanda at the end of after everything that happens at Westview. And I think that was a bit of a criticism for a lot of people, including myself. It's like, hey, like Wanda was like bad news in this series and like shouldn't be like forgiven for her to her to her, her personal self good intentions, right? And the, the movie also leans into that. I thought that was that was great, great idea to make her the villain. And honestly, the, this this Wandavision Doctor Strange two arc for the character is the best material this character has had after not being much of a presence at all in all the other Avengers movies. So I uh, thought it was really compelling that the Scarlet Witch was the the true villain of the story, and. They do a really good job of having the magic and sorcery stuff feel pretty compelling. 
I, I do think it was a good choice to have her as the villain. Um, I don't know if the portrayal of her, what was driving her decisions is necessarily one that I thought was well thought out. It's very fraught still ever since the show. Yeah. And to be, to be completely honest, like I think it's a, a not a great look for the MCU to basically be taking uh, motherhood and using that as a way to like drive uh, a, a villain into doing some of the, the worst things that we've seen on screen from uh, someone who was once a hero in these films. I mean, Wanda is trying to kill a, uh, a, a teenager throughout the, the course of this movie. She is trying to, she, she kills a lot of people in this movie. Um, and, you know, WandaVision, for as uh, much as she was a villain in that, no one actually ends up really, really dying. People were, you know, mind controlled for a month, uh, just mind controlled for a month, <laughs> you know, but like they don't actually die. She's actually murking dudes in this. And I, I don't know if, if I think they should have thought out a little bit more like what was driving her and what her motivation was and maybe rethought like being like oh she just wants to be with her kids again that's driving her like crazy or driving her to do this i think it is a bit regressive um did but i do i do think it was smart because you know when you when you think about it if they had made it like oh there's this demon out there and strange and wanda have to team up i mean it just becomes a general mcu versus some you know cgi villain that you can't connect with so i think this definitely made the movie a little bit more grounded for me for sure yeah yeah absolutely um i also enjoyed like the the presence as like other doctor stranges as like yeah. your antagonist at the end there uh you know the the music fight we talked about but like evil doctor strange which is technically referenced in marvel what if you don't need to have watched what if honestly to watch this movie yeah. but again like you we're not throwing anyone else in here it's all kind of self-contained uh between Wanda and Strange and again smart you know I think I guess the biggest newcomer of consequence to this story is certainly the America Chavez character yeah. and completely introduced for the series and she in a, in a sense is almost a MacGuffin presence right we have um the 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 two books right the dark hold and the the Vishanti, book of Vishanti, the good and bad book, basically. But then we also have America Gomez and her powers to teleport between dimensions, although out of her control. You know, I I thought the performance from uh, uh, Zocchio Gomez was was pretty solid, pretty good, and I I wouldn't wouldn't mind seeing her pop up in like a, one of these Young Avengers properties we're surely gonna get soon. Yeah. But I think for the for the sake of Doctor Strange two, America Gomez is she's kind of like on the short end of the stick, you know, like the stuff with her with her parents is it's very basic and and, and quick, and you know I feel like like the beats of the Gomez character are like pretty pretty straightforward. Yeah, uh, just seeing. Uh, just want to clarify, uh, it's America Chavez, and the, the actress's name is Z- Zatil. Gomez I yep. can't I have a hard time pronouncing that you were just saying America Gomez but no oh, big sorry. deal yep. um yeah e- easy to get those confused but uh yeah I agree I I don't know if, if America really did much and it's actually interesting to think about when these movies are supposed to come out in terms of 
No Way Home too, because right, I see Strange's uh, the way that he's approaching Peter in No Way Home and the way he's approaching kind of mentoring America very similarly. And if this movie had come out first, I think it would have actually confused a little bit the way Strange acted towards Peter in No Way Home because he's he's a bit cold and just kind of like what are you doing? Like, this is ridiculous. Like figure it out. Whereas with America, he's a little bit more like, you know, trying to be nurturing and, and understanding. Now he doesn't, he doesn't at this point know who Peter Parker is based on the spell he casts. So I don't know if it would have made sense. I don't know if his character development makes sense either way. Um, but I, I do think it's just interesting to think about. Um, but yeah, America, uh, we'll see her again. I just don't know if I was super fascinated by her storyline mm-hmm. um you know i i think one of the major presences in this strange versus the older strange is rachel mcadams and i was wondering yeah. how you felt about her presence in this do you feel like she was worth kind of building back into this yeah it, yeah as christine palmer yeah i yeah. think it's a it's one of those things where like christine palmer character in dr strange one pretty straightforward you know what to expect kind of thing I guess the um the like out of body surgery experience by the best her best moments in the first film. I like that I at least for the continuity's sake kind of brought her in and gave it the best grace note they could. They also don't really spend too much time with her for all intents and purposes, which I think is good because like the character ultimately was not like super established, you know. I mean, I don't think Christine Palmer's gonna have a a come big comeback the way uh, Jane Foster is having the comeback in Thor four, for yeah. example. So it's uh, I think I think it was fine. I mean, I like Rachel McAdams. You know, she's a great actress. So it's not much of a part, but no. I guess once we go to the other universe and we see a different version of Christine, I thought that was kind of a smart way to give McAdams at least a little bit more to do. Yeah, I, I, I was, I was happy to see her. I just was kind of like, eh, I, I could have taken this or, or left it. I mean, this is really like a strange character development device. Um, you know, him, right. his presence with Mick Adams and America totally is. Um, and I, I think it was nice to like be, ha- be like forcing him to confront not only that relationship, which could have been the only one that they forced him to confront, but also facing his relationship with everybody else in terms of how people see him and kind of going through these different uh, universes and seeing that in almost all of them in some way his presence is seen as like detrimental based on the way that he behaves I I thought that was pretty interesting to think about and to actually like see that flashback with the Illuminati of like strange on the, the planet after Thanos had been killed and then you know choosing to kill him because they thought it was best for the the sake of all the universes yeah. was really interesting and thought provoking for sure. Um, you know, we haven't talked much about Cumberbatch in this. I mean, how did yeah, you yeah. feel about his performance? Yeah, I mean, I, I've always liked his performances because I feel like he can do do what you do what you want from Stephen Strange. In the first film, it's very much like this is guy kind of like Tony Stark, and mm-hmm. Cumberbatch does that that arrogance well, and he obviously is the, the key figure in uh, this film as the title would suggest. And I, I like Cumberbatch and I think he, he, he did good with giving you a few different performances because he's playing a few different versions of strange. So yeah, I think he's, he did, he did, did well once again. 
Yeah, I, th- I thought so too. I, I think he said in an interview recently that he wants to play this character for the next 10 years. And this is something we had kind of talked about in past uh, past movies when he's appeared, whether it was Spider-Man or his own movie. It's just like he seems primed at this point, especially as they're exploring more of the multiverses to be mm-hmm. one of those tentpole heroes who might just be showing up in movies every once in a while right. as people are traveling these universes, kind of taking on that new Stark type perspective and the the post credit scene of course suggests more to come and yeah you know i think for benedict cumberbatch i think it actually works out because benedict cumberbatch works a lot and he makes a lot of you know more independent movies adult dramas and stuff and then he just pays all his bills with dr strange he actually seems to have really figured it out well where he can balance both the creative and monetary sides of his career pretty well yeah uh i i totally agree and you know it's interesting to see him and uh, you know, get so much acclaim for Power of the Dog, and then jumping right back into MCU stuff. Uh, people are full of of multitudes. You mentioned the after credit scene, which I think we can just touch on cl- on quick, where Clea shows up. My understanding is Clea is like usually his like main love interest. Is that correct? Yeah, I think she yeah. becomes the wife of Doctor Strange at one point, becomes Sorcerer Supreme herself. Well, Charlie Theron. So let's just back it up here. <laughs> the MCU has introduced three complete A-listers in the last, you know, seven months. Harry Styles at the end of Eternals. And then in this film, John Krasinski and Charlize Theron. Charlize Theron, the signature female action star in the last 10 years. Yep. Fucking dropping bags, man. Taking names. <laughs> I was very impressed. Like, Charlize Theron? Holy shit. Yeah, when she showed up, I was like, wow, that's that's a, a sign that they're really investing in this moving forward. So uh, really, really good stuff. Uh, you know, just real quick, I think one of the things I just wanted to touch on, and it actually doesn't have to be real quick, I think we should go more into it, is the Illuminati were fucking chumps, bro. I mean, it, it's a great moment, right, when, when he gets... He goes to Earth, whatever it is, like 163 or whatever the number uh, is. Like yes, Earth, Earth but, other Earth. They, they established a comic thing of named universes and stuff. Yes. Uh, this was Earth 838. 838. And, uh, you know, he gets uh, Morto, tricks him and drugs him with the tea. Uh, you mm-hmm. can never trust Morto, it seems. Um, and brings him in front of the, the council, the Illuminati. And yep. the Illuminati is Professor X and uh, Reed Richards and Mordo and uh, the other people you mentioned. Black Bolt, Captain Carter, and uh, yes, Captain a, Carter, of course. A different Captain Marvel played by uh, Rambo. Yes. And so you got these characters all incredibly powerful and they just they just get got so, so easily, dude. What what chumps? Absolute chumps. You know, on the, the other eight. Bogus. On the other hand, I I enjoyed seeing it because there's been a lot of talk throughout the years, like you know, like when people do like March Madness brackets for Marvel characters, like, well, Wanda's always gonna win; she's the most powerful. And yeah. they actually finally did it. It's like, yeah, you know what? And like Strange said it himself. It's like between the the Archer and the Magical Witch, yeah. uh, it's an easy choice. You know, they finally did it. They basically put their dick on the table and been like, you know what? This is like our most powerful person currently alive yep. and here you go you can see it manifested so i actually didn't mind it I, I really like seeing um the in the mind scene between yeah wanda and charles xavier because it's very reminiscent of course what we saw with other the x-men films that patrick stewart was in of course um 
and a good good way to have like her fight and defeat professor yeah. x I, I quite enjoyed it yeah i i completely agree i i i do think it was i wish they put up a little bit more of a fight i mean literally like reed richards just get that's going to be his strategy he's the smartest guy in the universe he's going to go up to this person who he knows is super powerful and just be like come on don't do this you're (laughs) you're you're better than this and she just turns them into zoodles dude she turns them into zoodles it's tough (laughs) so there was a lot of um they did some reshoots for this film like they do for every blockbuster however there were some like rumors and suggestions that after no way home came out or at least started getting test screened and there was like a super warm response to Toby Maguire and Garfield being in it that they might have amped up the cameo factor for Doctor Strange 2. It's just kind of been suggested we don't really know. Um, I I'm, I wonder how that might have been done, whether they maybe even added additional characters straight up and redid the fight or added to it. I'm not really sure. It's a great it's a hypothetical I don't, I don't know if we'll ever find that out but for something that's ultimately super fan servicey and because this is a multiversal movie honestly completely inconsequential it's still pretty effective as fan service right you know like i, I was anticipating it because they, they, they released a clip of the illuminati which is very famous in the comics and i was like oh, i wonder who it'll be at you know because um t'challa is a famous member of the illuminati in the comics obviously we're not going to see that oh like, huh, who's it going to be and then they had a uh, Captain Carter, you know, from What If, Haley Atwell, and uh, a different Captain Marvel, Rambo. They had that also like picked out in like trailers and clips. So I was like, okay, we know about those. But seeing Black Bolt as the Inhumans from the Inhumans, pretty cool way to reintroduce the Inhumans after like the failed series and Agents of Shield and all that. Wow, okay. Krasinski though, as Reed Richards, Mister Fantastic, complete completion of numerous years of fan casting for the character it actually happened there it is and then they actually brought back Stewart again as professor yeah. x i was like wow they really uh delivered in in this department and like you said the fight's pretty uh pretty brief um perhaps that's kind of by necessity with the film you can't really have this complete detour with all these other people that don't really matter i get it but for the fan service angle, I thought it was it was still pretty pretty awesome. I I definitely I mean it was it got a huge response in my theater. People were very excited when this when this scene came on. Uh, I think Reed Richards was obviously the the yeah. number one. But then when when Patrick Stewart came out, people were like, "Oh shit! Like he's back!" <laughs> and that was that was big. And I mean, it it does open up everything that we kind of expected to be happening you know we already knew the fantastic four movie was going to be happening actually i think john watts just left that he um, did yeah so the you know again fantastic four movie potentially having some problems early on we'll see uh but then the the idea of how they're gonna kind of bring the x-men in here makes sense and it feels a little bit uh i'm not super familiar with the storyline in the comics but the secret wars or what i'm reading are seem to be being set up here you know the idea of like a watcher who like puts these people together um we'll see yeah it seems like if they're going to introduce fantastic well fantastic four is going to have their own film that's one thing yeah but like x-men and like inhumans as well it's like we're probably just going to skip a lot of steps by one of these like big event series being put onto film to kind of like speed things up basically and bring all these new characters to the fore so tbd there we're honestly kind of due for a announcement 
from Marvel just because we only actually have titled movies dated through the end of 2023 next year. Usually we know a little bit further in advance, um, you know, as the phases go. You know, Blade, for example, we don't even have a date for that. And anything post post that film, you know, we don't know. So I wouldn't be shocked if sometime this year, Disney and Marvel do their own event and kind of lay out their plans a little bit. Yeah, Feige in an interview just recently said that they uh, um, have mapped out the next 10 years of superhero mm. movies. So MCU, not not planning to slow down anytime soon. Yeah. Um, were you excited to see Reed Richards? on screen yeah well i mean i'm looking forward to the film just because fantastic four at one point were a very popular comic and honestly for the time i did enjoy the two fantastic four movies we did get obviously they're very dated and the second one's not too good but i liked them and i want to i want to see that done right and i actually kind of just like chuckled to myself i was like wow they actually got krasinski for it they really did it wow that's um kind of monumental and then, oh, yeah, they drop a bomb at the end of the movie. Oh, yeah, surely Theron's in MCU now, too. Like I said, like crazy shit, you know, honestly. Um, so, yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to Fantastic Four uh, down the line. Um, you know, one thing, honestly, w- after watching the movie, I was kind of surprised is we don't actually see uh, Chiwetel Ejiofor's Mordo in the current like universe we know. We don't actually see the Mordo we know. We only see the other Earth, other, other universe Mordo. I thought that was kind of interesting just because the end of Doctor Strange 1 is leaving you with Mordo's broke bad and he's a bad guy now. And yeah. you know, we don't know anything about what that one's that guy's up to, honestly. Yeah. He's kind of out there. We'll, yeah. we'll see him eventually, I'm sure. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think overall, I left this movie feeling satisfied, um, but just uh, as someone that hasn't seen everywhere, everything all the time, and you Close. being someone everything, that has, everywhere, all at once. All at once. Oh, man, I'm never going to get that. Uh, what was your response in just seeing another movie that has gotten so much acclaim for their portrayal of the multiverse and how inventive that was? Yeah, well, I mean, Everything Everywhere All at Once is a better film than No Way Home. It's a better film than Doctor Strange 2. Significantly better. So I would encourage anyone who likes these kind of stories that got super mainstreamed by Into the Spider-Verse, seek out Everything Everywhere All at Once because that is an amazing original film. And by comparison, Doctor Strange 2 is not that multiversal. Like we said, we don't really spend time anywhere except two places, which is not the case in everything, everywhere, all at once. So I'll be interested to see how multiverse heavy future MCU stuff is, because I do still believe that it kind of eliminates a lot of your stakes when you're doing things in a universe that you don't care about and it doesn't really matter. Like that's why they could do the Illuminati cameo because they can just wipe their hands clean of it and never reference any of those people again, if they so choose and it would make sense to the fans, you know? So I I think handling your stakes is a challenge when you're juggling universes like this, everything everywhere all at once really nails it. Spider-Man no way home obviously do the fan service angle of it does it well too this movie i think that it's perhaps one of the weaker elements of dr strange 2 but it doesn't hamper the movie at the end of the day i did think it was a cool scene when they were flying through the different multiverses and like the the bodies were changing into different things like from drawings to paint to different 
uh, forms. I thought that was pretty fun. It, it, this is not a good, good, good compliment, but it reminded me of the hyperspace jumping sequence in Rise of Skywalker, where there are like mm. ten planets in a row. Yeah, that's oh, that, that's interesting. That's a good, good call. Um, yeah, you know, I think they're they're trying to set up the stakes. You know, if the if too much happens within these universes, then they kind of crash into each other and they're all destroyed. But I think we actually have to see like what that might look like you know before we can actually like care about those stakes at all like it hasn't happened yet you know we haven't actually seen these these universes collide so well we'll right. see one last note just want to shout out benedict wong as wong yeah I haven't talked about him yet he's really awesome in this role benedict wong has awesome comedic timing seen that in other stuff like what we do in the shadows obviously it's a small supporting role at the end of the day but i think he's he's a really funny guy I actually we didn't talk about much at the Kamertai, but um I mean I thought that was like a okay scene. I mean it's the fight it, with all yeah, the, the sorcerers, yeah. Yeah, and you know, I, I think it's it was cool to see all the sorcerers like fighting together, although again, <laughs> Wanda's just too powerful, man. And like the the fact that she doesn't just like get this kid immediately is just like crazy. Like it doesn't right. make any sense when you look hey, at it. I mean she is fighting sorcerers, it's not like she's fighting a bunch of people, but yeah. Throughout the movie, Wanda waxes everyone. Yeah, they didn't hold anything back. It was good. Uh, anyways, uh, we're gonna wrap it up there for this week, Dave. What are we? What are we doing next week? Well, next week we'll be reviewing the weekend's entire discography, all these albums. Nostalgia ranks, baby. And then after that, we have a lot of stuff to get to. New Kendrick Lamar album at last. Harry Styles, Better Call Saul, Final Season Part One wraps up. Uh, Atlanta season three wraps up made for love season two a lot of good stuff other music a lot of stuff to get to check out our nostalgia ranks next week give us a five star rating on uh, Spotify and also hit that subscribe if you're watching YouTube we'll catch you next week and-